0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Jordan. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Uh, first and foremost, major shout out to everybody who's rocking with us for the first time. Uh, I always know you guys have so many different options of places you could be, and I'm just grateful that you guys uh, chose to worship on this Resurrection Sunday uh, with us. If it's your first time or you're, you've never done that Connection card, those T-shirts are extremely comfortable. We didn't cheap out and get the, the, the dry cotton uh, that'll scratch your neck up. We got the good stuff, so um, please make sure you send those, uh, put those connection cards at the uh, info desk. Hey, so back in the day, in the 90s, uh, my brother was looking for a summer job. Uh, he had applied to a couple different places, and each place turned him down. And then he did what people did in the 90s. Uh, when you look for a job, uh, this was before the internet was as widespread as it is today, you would turn to an actual newspaper and look in the wanted ads. So he saw this one job, it looked really promising. It was a sales position, and they promised he could make thousands of dollars a week. Now even though he's an introvert, and he had zero sales experience, uh, he decided to go for the interview. He put the suit on, got nervous, and went upstate to uh, an interview. Surprisingly, he got the job. He was so excited about having uh, this job, and before his first day on the job, he got a haircut, got fresh. Uh, threw a suit on and drove up state to meet his coworker. Now instead of having to have like an orientation or having to learn a new product uh, that he would be selling to people, or instead of a client list to work through, um, he basically met with one of his uh, sales associates who basically looked like a used car salesman. And no offense to the used car salesman in the congregation, and instead of uh, a real sales job, they would go from office to office building, sneaking in, sometimes running past the security guard, selling stuffed animals that did the Macarena. <laughs> the Macarena, you guys know that, right? I'm just gonna give y'all a taste, I can't do the whole, the whole thing. Now, my brother had feared that this job was too good to be true, and after a couple of days, instead of making thousands of dollars, he ended up losing money, because of all the gas that he wasted uh, driving this dude around from building uh, to building. And he was pretty defeated. And this is the worst part of the whole thing. He was so defeated and so unwilling to even face up to what happened, he asked my mother, could she call his boss? And just like, Ma, can you just tell him I can't use the car anymore and get me out of this? Now, here's what his fear was, that uh, a sales job promising some teenager thousands of dollars a week with no experience was too good to be true. Now, you might not have stooped as low as selling Macarena monkeys, but all of us have had experiences in life where we've had something that we thought was too good to be true, we kind of went after it, and then, in fact, we realized that it was too good to be true. Maybe it was a relationship. Everything looked great from his online profile, (laughs) right? You swipe left, and you're like, yo, hit me back. Everything looked good from the picture, you were telling your friends about it, this is the one, this is the one. One of your friends said, hey, this sounds a little too good to be true, and you were like, no, 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 this is is the one. And eventually, after about two, uh, maybe one painful date and uh, never getting a text back again, you realized that this dude was a fraud, and it was in fact too good to be true. Now, a lot of us have had experiences, whether it was at the job or relationship or anything in life where we've believed in something. We thought something was going to happen. We hoped for something to happen. And even though we feared it was too good to be true, we still went after it. We still invested some time in it. And then the inevitable happened, and we did realize that it was all a charade. It was all too good to be true. Now, here's where the difficulty of that lies, is that Uh, it makes us put up defense mechanisms and barriers uh, in life in general. And we turn a little skeptical. We start getting skeptical about everything in life because we don't want to be put in the same position we were in before where we were naive and we believed in something that was too good to be true and it let us down. Now, if we're not careful, that line of thinking will bleed into the way that you and I understand God and the way we look at God. And specifically on today that we're looking at uh, a day called Resurrection Sunday where billions of people all over the world are celebrating something called the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there are some of you guys today that you like, it sounds good, but it's probably too good to be true. So God became flesh, came to earth as a human, died for my sins, and all I had to do was put my faith in him? I don't know. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Now, in a room this size, there's always people who have a number of doubts and reservations about the resurrection, and maybe you're saying, hey, it's cool, like, even if it didn't happen, then as long as it could teach me some stuff about life, as long as, you know, I'm a good person, and as long as, you know, I can follow the teachings of Jesus, then it's all good. It really doesn't matter whether or not he, he raised from the dead. There's a scripture that I want us to look at today from 1 Corinthians 15, Uh, It's a a scripture written by a man named Paul, and Paul was a follower of Jesus, and we'll look at his life a little bit later, but here's what Paul says. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If only for this life, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's what Paul is saying to this church in Corinth, uh, and here's what I think it could challenge us today at Renaissance. Here's what Paul is saying. If Jesus was just a nice dude that really had some great teachings and could gather a crowd, if all he was was a nice guy that eventually got crucified, and if he didn't actually raise from the dead, then anybody who believes in Jesus is pitiful. You are the most pitied. Think about somebody that you pity. Maybe it's a Knicks fan that still believes (laughs) that one day the glory is going to return to the garden. One day. Not under Phil Jackson, but one day, maybe. <laughs> now, here's what Paul is saying. If Jesus is just a good story, if Jesus is just a legend that somebody made up, then anybody who puts their faith in Jesus doesn't have any hope. They are the most to be pitied. And one of the foundational questions that you and I have to ask is, did Jesus actually get about that ground? Now, for others, um, you have a lot of different problems with religion and certainly organized religion has given you a lot of reasons to have problems with religion. And you might be saying, well, I don't know about Jesus because of this and I don't like the way this happened over here. I don't like this, I don't like what Jesus says about whatever whatever. The main question is not whether you not you like what the Bible teaches about one subject or another. The main question is did Jesus get about the ground? If he didn't, who cares what he says? But if he did, then you and I kind of have to put the full weight of everything that he, on everything that he said. Like, I just want to follow the dude that raised from the dead. If he didn't raise from the dead, you're free of charge. You don't have to listen to a word that he said. But if he did, then that should change the way that you and I uh, actually live. And Paul is forcing the church to wrestle with who they actually believe Jesus is. And this is the foundational thing of all of our faith. Now, I want to ask you guys two questions today, and then I'll let you get to your auntie's house for Easter dinner. Um... How can you know the resurrection is true? Right? How can you know the resurrection is true? And if it is, what practical things should that do to your life? First question, how, should, how can you and I know? How can you and I have more confidence? Uh, how can you and I have more faith and more belief that the resurrection is actually true? Uh, I'm a storyteller. I love to listen to stories. I love a good podcast. I love a good series on Netflix. Um, I most recently listened to a podcast called S-Town. Anybody listen to that one? S-Town? All right, so here's how it ends. (laughs) No, I'm not going to give away the ending. It's a a great podcast, Um, but the way it starts, the narrator starts with this amazing monologue about fixing clocks, and you're like, why is that interesting about fixing an old clock? The main subject of the podcast is a man that specialized in old clock repair, so clocks that were made two, three, four, five hundred years ago, this guy was a, specialized, a specialist at putting these clocks back together. Now, with a clock that old, you can't like go to Google and look for instructions on how to put it back together. There are no YouTube tutorials on how to put together a 500-year-old clock. But here's what he said, that the clock maker would know that in the future, people would have to rely Um, Not necessarily on what they could uh, see fully, they wouldn't have an instruction manual. Uh, So the clockmaker would leave these things called witness marks. And he would leave little impressions in the clock all throughout so that when they would take it apart, they would discover the road back to what the clockmaker had originally intended. You and I don't have a time machine. We don't have a DeLorean with a flux capacitor. None of us could go back to the day that Jesus was resurrected and sit outside in front of the tomb like, yo, I want to see if this dude comes out. (laughs) None of us have that option, but we do have witness marks all throughout history. There are impressions that God the Creator has made in history that would lead you and I. As we uncover uh, and take some stuff apart a little bit, we would uncover more and more confidence that Jesus was, in fact, resurrected. God has left us these impressions. Now, for whatever reason, uh, people today tend to think that people back then... Were gullible and you know people back in the day they believe anything they didn't have a good understanding of science or whatever so they just put everything on God and they were more likely to believe in the resurrection than you and I are uh, but the opposite of that is actually true they had every reason to not believe in it uh, much more reasons than us to not believe in the resurrection yet incredibly Christianity turned in from a handful of men and women to the most explosive movement this world has ever seen and you want to know why they did that You want to know why Christianity became what it was? Not because they were amazing preachers, not because they had uh, great singers, not because they had a choir, because they believed and they preached that Jesus Christ had raised from the dead. And that teaching, that ethic, that fuel changed the course of human history. But I was thinking, how does actually someone, how does actually... How do you actually start to believe in something more and more? Uh, I think it's a combination of two things. It's objective stuff, and then it's subjective. So the first, uh, imagine you uh, are a boss at your company and you have to hire someone. You would interview different candidates, you would look at resumes, you would call references, and you would check the person out objectively. But at some point, the objectivity stops. You can't know for certain that this is the perfect person for the job just based off of an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. Eventually, when that boss needs to hire someone, she's going to have to go out on a limb and commit a little bit to hiring someone. And after she hires them, maybe a year later or two years later, she'll look back and she'll say, that was definitely the right choice. Or for some people, that was definitely not the right choice and we need to fire them. Now, here's what I want you to do for the next couple of minutes. I want you to commit to take a little journey with me. I, we're going to give you a lot of objective facts, but I want you to commit to going a little journey with me in evaluating some of these witness marks that God has left for us in time, and my hope is that it would leave us with much more confidence and much more boldness in Jesus' resurrection. Now the first one is, the first witness mark that I think is an amazing one to look at is scripture, right? So um, the scripture that we looked at today, 1 Corinthians, this book was written. Just 20 years after Jesus was crucified, 20 years. Now, 20 years ago, I can tell you exactly what I was doing when Biggie got shot, right? Everybody know when Biggie got killed? There's two dates in my mind that I'll never forget. I'll never forget 9-11, and I'll never forget where I was when Biggie got shot. I was in my brother's car, the same car that he used to drive around the Macarena Monkeys. <laughs> and we had on Hot 97, and they, na- they came on and said, Biggie Smalls was murdered. And I'll never forget that day. Now, let me tell you who the hardest person to convince that Jesus was this fabricated or made up, the people that were alive and can remember the day that he was crucified. Jesus' following was crazy, that he would basically step out into a crowd and there would be tens of thousands of people that would travel for miles and miles and miles, travel for days just to see Jesus speak. He was a huge figure. His crucifixion was a major, major event that everybody heard about. Now, listen, everybody would have heard about Jesus' crucifixion, and the easiest way to just squash the movement would have been like, yo, I was alive when it happened. Jesus didn't raise from no dead. Like, yo, I mean, nobody has claimed to see that. Nobody believes that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. Paul was writing this letter to people that were actually alive when Jesus was crucified, and these were the very people he had to convince that Jesus was, in fact, resurrected. Now, there are some people on the fringes who believe that Biggie and Tupac and Elvis and Prince are somewhere in the album right now. And if they did, <laughs> that joint would be fire if they made that joint. <laughs> but nobody, nobody is going to join a religion where you believe that Biggie came back from the dead. I saw the hearses go through Bed-Stuy when they had his coffin. I remember all of the things that were happening when Biggie got killed. And the most difficult person to convince that Biggie Smalls, for example, was resurrected would be people that were alive. And this is the crowd that Paul was writing to. Most legends like Alexander the Great or King Arthur, they're written 500 years after the person has died so that nobody who's alive was there for the day. This comes in 20 years after Jesus was crucified. And then Paul is coming to these these people saying, listen, Jesus really got up at that grave. He really did get up. And if he did, it would change everything. Now, the second witness mark is an amazing one, and it's the person of Jesus himself. uh, The the person of Jesus, and basically a lot of people uh, say in life, like, hey, if you can give me an airtight argument, if you can give me the perfect argument where there is no loopholes, there is so, there's nothing that I can say against it, if you can give me an airtight argument, then I'll believe. What if God didn't give us an airtight argument? What if God gave us an airtight person? What if God didn't give us an airtight argument? What if God's intention all along wasn't to, give, to paint you into the corner that you couldn't ever reason yourself out of it? What if God wanted you to take the clock apart and to look uh, at the witness mark of who Jesus actually was, and in seeing him and discovering who he is, you would start to become more and more convinced of his divinity? John Gerstner is a theologian, and uh, he says it like this. He says, in Jesus Christ, we see virtues combined that never anywhere else are combined. We see tenderness without weakness, strength without a milligram of harshness, humility without uncertainty, unbending convictions, and yet complete and utter um, approachability. You see power without the slightest insensitivity. You see passion without the slightest prejudice. You see total integrity without any rigidity, never unthinking, never a false word, never a misstep. I know a lot of people who have dismissed Jesus and kind of put them in this other camp of, well, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was like, yeah, I just don't like you know, all the stuff about Jesus. I said, hey man, like, you know, what, what about the Gospels bothers you? Like, which one? Like, which? And he was like, oh, I never read it. And that's actually true for a lot of people, that they've dismissed Jesus and maybe this is you and I'm not trying to come for you. Uh, and you've never actually taken the clock apart a little bit to see what the witness marks are that would point you in that direction. Now, if you were to sit down and read the Gospel of Luke, for example, it would take you a half hour, 45 minutes, uh, or you can do the audio Bible, right? That's what a lot of people do. One train ride to Brooklyn and you would have gotten through Luke. Now, here's what I would love for you to do. And if you're um, a person and you don't know where you're at, and we'll get to some, some other stuff later, I would love for you just to read the Gospel of Luke. Just read it and look at the person of who Jesus is. And maybe God won't send you an airtight argument, but maybe you'll be compelled by the airtight person of who Jesus is. Now, it's not just that we have Jesus in scriptures. Uh, We have real witness marks left in people's lives, Uh, people that have made radical, unexplainable changes in their life, men who went from total cowards to dudes who were completely courageous in unprecedented ways. First guy was Peter. Peter. Peter was a follower of Jesus and one of Jesus' closest followers, actually. And Peter had this problem where he was really confident about himself. So before Jesus is crucified, he stands behind Jesus. He's like, yo, Jesus, no matter what they do, I'm with you. Jesus looks at him and says, listen, bro, by the time the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you would have denied me three times. Peter says, no way. And then when Peter sees Jesus get arrested, when he sees how Jesus is actually being treated, he gets scared. And he starts to run away, and he denies Jesus. He's running through the town, and people are like, yo, aren't you that dude that was with Jesus? He's like, nope, not me. That's my cousin. (laughs) And one time, it says a woman came up to him and asked him, and he, he was so adamant against it that he started cursing her out. They're like, absolutely not. I am not the one. And the scripture says that Peter went away and wept bitterly. Peter, this dude who's a coward, denies Jesus, runs away, and starts crying. Next group of people, we see all of the disciples actually, Uh, it says they were shook in a room, um, huddled up, afraid that the authorities would catch them. John 20 and 19, it says, on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Now here's what we see, and this is so amazing. You see these dudes that are locked in a room and they're terrified, they're shook. Ain't no such things as halfway crooks. Half of y'all got that, right? You got it. Google it when you get home. Mob deep, shook, shook once. They're terrified. They're terrified. They just saw Jesus, their man, being crucified. They saw him beaten, they saw him bloodied. They were scared that the same thing that was happened to Jesus was gonna happen to them and they didn't want it to happen to them. So they're in this room locked in for fear. And then, something happened. And these same cowards, turn into the boldest people on the planet. These same men, not a different group of people, these same men that ran away, gave up the faith, and were running for their lives somehow say, listen, Jesus, I saw Jesus raised from the dead, and it changed everything about their lives. Now there's a lot of theories about uh, the disciples and you know, what happened to them, but here's the reality. They were confronted, captured, jailed, beaten, uh, and eventually killed for their faith, for their belief that Jesus was raised from the dead. They were killed for it, and not one of them broke the story. Not one of them said, you know what? Yo, you're bugging. Uh, he really didn't get up from the ground. They all stood there, and they took it. They all stood there and said, listen, if you're going to kill me, kill me. But Jesus raised from the dead. I know it. I saw him. There's a historian named Eusebius. He describes it. Uh, he says, Peter, Peter's wife was crucified in front of him. And he stood there and said, Jesus was raised from the dead. Then they took Peter and crucified him upside down, and he never recanted. Listen, these cowards, nobody ever recants their story. Nobody ever changes it, and why would that happen? Were they lying to protect a a theory? Were they lying to protect some teachings? Listen, I, I love the show Homeland, and every time they get to the, like, a part where they're about to torture somebody, I'm like, yo, they wouldn't torture me. If you need to get some information from me, you don't have to cut my pinky toe off. I'll tell you, I'll tell you whatever you wanna know, papa. What you want to know? Where is she? Let me draw a map. Don't commit a crime with me, because I'm snitching. You ain't cutting my fingers off. Now, maybe, maybe, maybe I would be bold enough to stand on the truth. But I'm definitely not standing on a lie. Every single lie that is told, every lie that I tell and every lie that you tell is intended to benefit us. One of my friends, he's, he did this in college. Uh, he would always send his professor uh, the paper. If the paper was due at midnight, he would send the professor the paper uh, an email with the wrong attachment. So he would send it like, you know, professor, thank you. I really enjoyed your class. It was very helpful. Here's my paper. Hope you have a good summer. And then he would feverishly work, through the, work on the paper throughout the night. Um, And then the professor would email him a day or two later and say, hey, you said the wrong attachment. He's like, oh, man. This is what happens when you don't get sleep. I knew I had to. And then finally, he's able to send him the paper that he's done. He's telling a lie to benefit him, and we all do that. Any lie that you've told this week, it's to benefit you. But who tells a lie that's going to put you in trouble? Who keeps up a lie that's going to cost you your life and your safety? Nobody in here is that stubborn. Nobody in here is that bullheaded that you would just keep up a lie that's going to cost you your life. Um, there's a story about a guy named Charles Colson. Charles Colson was a part of the Watergate scandal with Richard Nixon. Uh, and Charles Colson got arrested and eventually thrown in prison for his role in the, in the Watergate scandal. That they had to try, they were tapping phones and they were lying about it. Eventually Nixon was impeached or he resigned and got thrown out of office. And uh, everybody who was involved ended up going to jail as a part. And here's what he says about the resurrection. He eventually became a Christian. He says, "'I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me, because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true.'" Watergate involved 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles, 12 fishermen could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Now, Jesus has left a witness mark in these people's lives. These same people that we read from in scripture, these men and these women gave their lives uh, in the Roman Empire, in the Colosseum, some of these men and women were standing in the middle of the Colosseum while lions were being sent out after them, and they never once turned away from their their declaration that, I have seen the risen Savior. God has left a witness mark of showing us how radically he has transformed people's lives, and if their testimony is not good, then I don't know whose is. Now, it's not just people who turn from cowards to courageous, it's also people who had absolutely no intention of following Jesus, somehow say that they saw something, and then they start following Jesus and worshiping Jesus as God. And the first one is Paul. Paul was a Pharisee, and if you know anything about uh, Christian history, Pharisees were the most learned uh, and skeptical people of Christianity. Pharisees were Jesus' biggest opponent, and they routinely, over and over again, opposed who Jesus was and what he said he was doing. And Paul hated Christianity. And Paul was way more skeptical than you or any of your skeptical friends that writes a blog somewhere. Paul hated Christians, so much so that he had them killed. That's how much he hated Christians. And then Paul goes from completely denying everything, killing Christians, to someday saying, I saw the risen Jesus. And his life is completely transformed, and he ends up giving his life on this one thing, this one statement, I believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, he is Lord, and he is Savior. Now, if you saw a leader from ISIS uh, who's killing people somehow say, listen, I used to be killing these people, but now I saw the risen Jesus, and now I'm starting churches. And they got a renaissance in, in Baghdad somewhere. And he starts it. I'm going to listen to whatever he got to say. Like, yo, what you, t- you come here, you tell me whatever you saw, bro. Because if you go from that, because there's nothing that would explain Paul going from that to where he was, other than the fact that when Paul says, I saw the risen Jesus, that he saw the risen Jesus. And it's not just Paul, it's other people. Uh, Jesus' own brother named James that actually was worshiping Jesus as God. Now, do you know what my brother would have to do <laughs> to convince me that he is God in the flesh after I saw him selling macarena monkeys? <laughs> it would take an absolute miracle, nothing short of him rising from the dead In a, Indisputable evidence that would convince me that he is, in fact, someone to be worshipped. And you see, those who are closest to Jesus affirming this and giving their lives, not because they uh, wanted to get out for them, get something good for themselves. The opposite was true. They gave their lives because they were so convinced that Jesus had raised from the dead. And God has given us, they've given, God has given me and you these witness marks throughout history that would lead us to greater confidence that God has in fact raised Jesus from the dead. Men and women over the years have needed undeniable evidence that Jesus had raised from the dead and that evidence was a resurrection. Now, let me say for a quick second that there's some people, for sure, a lot of us, uh, nobody has a perfect faith. Nobody believes in anything 100%. Uh, Every one of us has our doubts and that's a a good thing. All of us have, have doubts. And let me just say this, if you have your doubts, then you need to know that Jesus is gracious to people who have doubts. Jesus' disciple named Thomas uh, had his doubts. And in some ways, people recall him doubting Thomas. He sees his, his friends and, and they say, yo, we just saw Jesus. He says, nah, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and if I can put my finger through him, unless I can do that, I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus shows up to him. And when Jesus shows up to him, he doesn't say, Thomas, smack him in the face. Like, how dare you doubt me? <laughs> he doesn't do that. He says, Thomas, here are my hands. Here are my feet. And then he leaves him with a statement. He says, Thomas, but blessed are those. Blessed are the men and women who believe and have not seen me. Blessed are the men and women who believe and have not seen me. One of my favorite scriptures is a story, and it's a prayer that I prayed in my own life so many times, and it's a prayer that I'd welcome you to pray. It's a man that comes to Jesus because his son is sick, and the father is completely. Uh, scared out of his mind. He comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, if there's anything you can do, please, please, please help my son. Jesus says, all things are possible to him that believes. And then then the man turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's a prayer that I prayed over and over again in my years as trying to follow Jesus. Jesus, I believe, but there's still a part of me that doesn't, and I need you to help me with my unbelief. Jesus honors those prayers, and Jesus walks with us. Now, the the walk of faith is not a walk of certainty. It's a walk where you and I commit to following Jesus uh, in hopes that Jesus would meet us where we are. And I've seen this in my own life, in the life of countless others. If you pray that prayer, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief, Jesus will answer you. I don't know how it's going to be. I don't know that uh, Jesus is going to send you an iMessage or anything like that. But Jesus, God has a way of showing up in our lives and putting people in our lives, surrounding us with people that fill us with faith. So yeah, here's a good part about all of this stuff. There are witness marks left all throughout history about Jesus being raised from the dead that I think are pretty amazing. Um, But let's just say Jesus did rise from the dead. What would that do to you and what would that do to me? What kind of assurance would that be if Jesus actually did get up out the ground? Here's what it means. It means that every single promise that Jesus has ever given you, you could take that joint to the bank and run with it. Every single promise that Jesus gives you is not just a vain aspiration that you have. Every single promise that Jesus has given us, you and I can count on it, and we can lean the entirety of our lives on that promise. There's a couple of scriptures that I want to point out, a couple of promises um, that can radically alter our lives, and, and I hope we are, in this next couple of minutes, confronted by the risen Savior in the most powerful of ways. Matthew 6.25 goes on to give us, one promise, and it's this. Our future is secure. Our future is secure. You are not flailing through space um, uh, on your own, uh, having to figure out everything on your own. Jesus promises us that you are not by yourself. And our future is secure. Matthew six twenty-five, uh, he gives us such a great uh, teaching. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you much more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what are we going to eat, what are we going to drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own, on its own. Here's what Jesus is saying. If Jesus raised from the dead, he tells you not to worry, stop worrying. If Jesus is powerful enough to be raised from the dead, then He can make sure you're good. And here's what Jesus is saying. And here's what we see in the resurrected Jesus uh, confronting and coming to us. Jesus, if He's powerful enough to be raised from the dead, if He says, "I got you." then he got you. If he says you don't have to worry, then you don't have to worry. Now, what are you worried about right now? What's the thing that's on your mind that if you wake up in the middle of the night, you can't, start, you can't stop thinking about it? Or it just plagues you, and all day you're thinking about this one thing, or it could be a number of things. Here's what Jesus is telling us today. Stop worrying. I am powerful enough to conquer death, hell, and the grave. You are not by yourself. You are not alone. Your future is secure. Matthew 28 and 20, Jesus says, And lo, I am with you always, even until the very end of the age. You and I have nothing to fear. The second promise that we can hold on to is that you and I are not defined by our past. You and I are not defined by your past. Everybody else will treat you based on how you've done in the past. But Jesus doesn't give us that treatment. As a matter of fact, he tells us, He was talking to some uh, religious rulers, and he says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I haven't come for everybody who had it all perfect on their own. I haven't come for any of them. I have come for sinners to turn them to repentance. And repentance basically means turning around. Here's what Jesus is saying. I have come. The reason I came is to take people who were on their own losing it, and I've come to turn them around. I've come to put them on the right track, and it's not up to themselves to do it. I am coming to call them to repentance. And if Jesus is calling us to do it, Jesus will lead us, and Jesus will provide everything we need to accomplish it. Last year, I got really uh, hooked on all of these Netflix documentaries on North Korea. It's a pretty fascinating regime going on over there. And there was one uh, episode about these doctors that flew over to perform cataract surgeries on everybody that uh, couldn't see in, in these villages. And these men and women flew across the world into a really dangerous place. They didn't know if they would ever come back on their own just so people could see. And here's the the beauty of it. The people received their sight not because they were so good, but because people came into a dangerous place for their benefit, and they came for them. Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. Jesus didn't come for you for the one who had the perfect vision, the one who had everything figured out on his own. Jesus has come to lead Those of us who have made a million mistakes, and our future is not based on our ability to figure it out. Our future is not based on our ability to fix it, but rather simply following the Jesus who calls us to turn around. And the last good promise about our our lives that we see from Jesus is that he's a good shepherd, the shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. In John 10, it says, uh, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is hired and he doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And here's what's so amazing about this. When the wolf of the Roman Empire came to try to scatter the disciples, They didn't scatter because they had Jesus as their good shepherd. They were able to persevere all things because Jesus really was their good shepherd. Now, Jesus uses this language very intentionally. He doesn't say, I'm the good boss who's going to give you a performance evaluation. He doesn't say, I'm the good professor who's just going to teach you a couple good lessons and then uh, you have to hand in your research paper at the end of the year. He says, I'm the good shepherd. and He promises us this, that he lays down his life for us as his sheep. Now, I know certainly not everybody in here has come to know Jesus in that way, that Jesus, you can say that he is your good shepherd. Uh, you may think he's a boss or, or whatever. You may still have questions, but maybe you don't know Jesus really as your shepherd. I'm not talking about you went to church with grandma back in the day, but that Jesus, uh, the, the risen, resurrected Savior, is now your leader, your shepherd, your Savior. In each bulletin that we passed out, we've created these things called next step cards. And this is who they're for. Anyone who wants to commit to taking the next step in faith and following Jesus. Here's what I know to be true. Uh, If you tell someone you're going to do something, your chances of doing that thing greatly increase. And if you just keep it to yourself, whether it's a diet or whatever it is, uh, you're probably not going to follow through with it. We want you guys to fill this out uh, if you want to take that next step. You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to have everything figured out. You don't have to know how to read Greek. You don't have to know any of that. All you need to know is, listen, I want to put my faith that Jesus rose, and he rose for me. At the info desk, you guys can drop these off, and one of the pastors will reach out to you this week. Uh, But we don't want you guys to walk away uh, without an opportunity to take Jesus as your good shepherd. If that's you, listen, fill this out. April 29th, we're going to have a class called the Next Step Class, where you can come, you can ask questions. You're not committing yourself to anything specifically. You can come, ask questions, and figure out what the next step of faith could be for you. Uh, And I hope it's this. I hope that you and I walk away uh, knowing that Jesus is a good, good shepherd. He is a risen Savior that is worthy of every single ounce of our trust. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for your people. I'm grateful for uh, this, this church. I'm grateful for this opportunity, um, God, to look at your resurrection. God, I confess even my own unbelief in the times that I worry. Uh, God, I, I pray that I would be comforted by the risen Savior that tells me not to worry. God, there's so many times even my own unbelief where I'm so worried about my past or what I've done, and I don't trust you as a good doctor, the good healer. Most importantly, Jesus, uh, I try to have it all figured out on my own, and today I lay that down. You are the good shepherd, and I want you to lead me. I ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.